Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Good morning to you. If we haven't had the chance to meet, I'm Robbie Itterberg, one of the pastors, and just want to welcome you to be with, with us this morning. You're joining us as we're continuing the sermon series that's carrying us through this summer that we're calling More to the Story, Bible Stories You Thought You Knew. And in this series, we are looking at some of the most incredible stories the Bible has to offer. And if they're familiar to you, we're hopefully approaching them with a freshness and attention to detail and meaning that maybe you missed the first times around. And if they're unfamiliar to you, hoping to help show that these aren't just incredible stories to know and be aware of, but that these stories have relevance to your life today, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, and that all of these stories ultimately point to Jesus. If you're interested in getting caught up on any of the other stories, you can go back and look at our YouTube channel, PCTRNJ, or listen on our podcast. As we jump in this morning, I'm wondering, how do you go about choosing which people to get involved with? I'm sure for you it varies based on the situation, whether you're entering into a business relationship or a school partnership or a more personal type of relationships. There's all sorts of things that we consider. And and it's often complicated when we're trying to also help other people figure out who they're going to be involved with. This was really common for me when I was in Texas. I was director of college and young adult ministry, and so I would have conversation and conversation with folks about relationships that they were in, particularly as they were dating and trying to seek some counsel of what they should do, conversations like the one I had where I was told, she's not spending as much time with me as I'd like. So I'm thinking about proposing to her. <laughs> no, this is, this is not the solution to your problem. <laughs> or, you know, when he drinks, he gets out of control, and it, it's embarrassing. But, but only when he drinks. Well, how often does he drink? At least every weekend. Well, okay. Or she, she won't come to church with me. I've invited her over and over again. As a matter of fact, she won't even have a spiritual conversation with me. What should I do? Should I continue to pursue these relationships or not? How would you guide them? This morning, as we enter into this story, I think one of the things that will stand out to you as it did to me is that perhaps God needs some advice on who he is in relationships with. You'll see this in the story that you may know as the Battle of Jericho. And it comes to us out of Joshua chapter chapter 6. It's the whole chapter, but I was tried to streamline it for our purposes this morning, but would encourage you to go read it on your own. If you'd like, you can follow along on the screen as we hear God's word for us this morning. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. 
When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets. And the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time, the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, Do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. On the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, the priests sounded the trumpet blast. Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent." When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray as we move into his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would bless the reading of it, the preaching of it, the hearing of it, that we with confidence know that your word will not return void, and so may you lead us and shape us as we hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So to set the scene just a little bit more, we find at the beginning of this story, the people of God, known as the Israelites, have entered into what is called the promised land. It's called that because God promised actually hundreds of years before this event to give this land to his people. It was going to be a land of security, of a provision, of abundance. It was going to be a home because they haven't really had a home for these hundreds of years. There's only one problem. There's some people that already live there. And of course, Israel actually already knew that because 40 years before this story happened, God had wanted to lead them into this promised land. And so in preparation from that, the people of God send out spies into the land, and the spies came back with this incredible, incredible report. The land is amazing. The fruit is incredible. It's plentiful and beautiful. But it's not just people who live here. We're told in Numbers chapter 13, but the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. 
And so at that time, that report was enough to discourage the people. They were afraid to enter in, and so they wouldn't go into the land, even though God had promised to give them. It was kind of like children refusing to go where their parents told them to go. No, we won't go. And so God didn't make them. Instead, they wandered the desert for the next 40 years until that entire generation of adults who refused to trust God, refused to live by faith that he would do what he said he would do, till all of them had passed, till they had died, and a new generation rose up. This generation, led by Joshua, they've already entered the promised land as God was leading them, and now they come across one of those incredible fortified cities, Jericho, with its huge wall. Actually, they think it was two walls that looked like this combined one wall where it was built into this huge embankment, this steep incline. And so the first wall was like a 12 to 15 foot high retaining wall. And then as the hill went up behind that, there was another wall that was like 20, 25 feet high. And so as they stand looking, it could have been 35, 40 feet above their head was the top of this wall. Now we're told in the first verse that we read this morning that Jericho was tightly shut. Nobody was going in or going out. They were afraid of the Israelites because they had heard what the Lord had done when he brought them through the Red Sea, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. They heard about how the Israelites had defeated two different kings just outside of the promised land. And so they've locked themselves inside their fortress with no one coming in, no one going out. But there's still this wall problem, isn't there? You know, they've been wandering for 40 years. They don't have the siege works required to take down a fortress like this. They don't have the experience in battles like this. And yet, in verse 2, we see God talking to Joshua and tells him this. See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and fighting men. It's kind of a weird sentence if we really look at it. We really think about being Joshua in this moment. See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. See? No. I see a giant wall. I don't see how this is going to happen, let alone that it already has happened, which is really what the sentence says. I have delivered Jericho. Past tense. It's already done. The victory is already won. And I wonder this morning, as we enter into this story where you're at, your circumstances, if that's the word for you this morning, is that the victory is already won. I have already delivered you. I've delivered you from your sin, from your loneliness, from your trial, from your pain, from your sickness, from your shame, from your fear, from your doubt, from your hopelessness. I have already delivered you. Yeah, but God, there's still a wall. I see it. I see my sin. I see my brokenness. I see my loneliness. I see my frailty. I see my doubt. It's right in front of me. And this is where faith comes in. This is where faith matters day in and day out in our lives when all you can see is a wall in front of you. Because faith is living in confidence that the victory is sure. 
Hear that again. Faith is living today, here and now, in confidence that the victory is sure. And faith will change how you live day in and day out. I don't know if you've been following the Mega Millions lotto jackpot that has grown to $1.34 billion, the second largest prize in history. And if I told you with good knowledge that you were the winner, what would you do? Would it change how you live today? You know, some of you, first thing, I'm going to call my spouse, I'm going to call my family, my friends, I'm going to go buy something crazy, I'm going to go quit my job, I'm going to give a whole lot of money away, it's going to be awesome. You know, what would you do? How about go buy a ticket first? Kind of a fundamental step here, isn't it? If you're going to win, you've got to have the winning ticket. But see, living by faith means you're going to go buy the ticket. You're going to champ. Maybe you've never bought a ticket before, but today I'm going to buy a ticket because you have confidence that you're the winner. Living by faith changes what you're going to do today, and then it'll change everything you do after that. Living in fear, living in doubt, you're going to say, you know, I'm not so sure. You know, I've never really bought a ticket because I never win anything, and you know what? I've got all these bills, and I'm not sure how I'm going to make ends meet, and I'm not sure if I'm ever going to get to retire, and you know... Yeah, but you're going to win the mega millions. Yeah, but all I see is a wall. See, living by faith is living with confidence that the victory is sure. It impacts how you live today and every moment. Now, unfortunately, if you're following this, you know that there was a winning ticket already sold. And so unless you bought your ticket in Illinois, I hate to break it to you, you didn't win. (laughs) But this is faith. And Joshua and the Israelites are living by faith. God had told Joshua, hey, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. Now this is what I want you to do. And what I want you to do, let's get real, this is crazy. Because God tells him, I want you to march around the city. And I want your armed men to go out first and behind them. I want you to have seven priests with seven horns or these seven trumpets. And I want them blowing their trumpets as they're walking. And behind that, I want the Ark of the Covenant. That physical symbol I gave you as a gift to remind you of my presence among you. And then behind that, I want the rear guard. And I want you to go around this city acting like a bunch of buffoons. See, I just want to be clear on something. If it's not already, this is not a military strategy. Not even in the ancient world is this some sort of military strategy. Like, those who are trying to make it into a strategy, like, the best thing they can come up with is, like, maybe the Israelites were trying to freak them out and get them all confused because they're all crazy out there and they don't know what's coming. That's kind of a weak argument. Now, this is ridiculous, what they're doing. But this is living by faith. And so they walk around the city as God told them. One time around the city, back to camp, good night's rest, repeat for six days. And on the seventh day, they get up really early, we're told, because they've got a lot to do. Because on the seventh day, we're told that they need to walk around the city seven times doing the same thing. And at the end of the seventh time, 
we finally get this special blast from the trumpets from the priests. And at that moment, finally, the people who have been marching silently other than these crazy trumpets for these seven days, they're finally given the instruction by Joshua to shout. And when they shout, the walls of Jericho collapse or come tumbling As a kid, I was taught a a song that went with this. You may have heard it and heard some of the tune even earlier this morning. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Now, what's crazy is that as I learned this song, God is never mentioned in the song. It's like, wait a second. How much fighting did Joshua really do? I mean, yeah, sure, okay, the walls collapsed and they had to go in. But doesn't that seem like the easy part in the big picture? Like, wasn't it really God who had fought for them? God who delivered them? I mean, he tells them to do these crazy things, putting the ark right in the center just in case they forgot who was really at work here. March around here, and then miraculously, when they decide to break their silence and shout, the fortress of Jericho, the walls come crashing down, sending the people inside into what must have been total chaos. Can you imagine? And so they would have had no organization, no army that was set up to defend itself, and so the Israelites walk in, and it's easy from there. God had delivered them. God had fought for them. When all they could see was a wall, they literally walked by faith around the city, believing that God would give them the victory somehow. They walked by faith and obedience. It was not a military strategy. It actually has more, more, common, you know, more in common with a worship service, with the trumpets blasting. And the ark, which is typically in the most holy place in the temple, in the tabernacle, right there in the center as the people are gathered around. They worshiped as they walked by faith. And I wonder this morning, as you're only maybe able to see a wall, what would it look like for you to walk by faith? to walk by faith, to live with a confidence that the victory is sure. And as we sit with the details of this story, it can can be a little unsettling when you start really digging into it. Because you may find yourself wondering, why is it that Israel gets to live and the people of Jericho die? a fair question. And actually, Deuteronomy chapter 9 and the broader context of the Bible kind of helps us address this question. In Deuteronomy 9, verse 5, it says this, it's not because of your righteousness, Israel, or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. See, it's not that Israel was so great, it was that the nations, that Jericho, it was their wickedness, it was their evil. And we don't get all the details of how, how could it have been that wicked and that evil. I mean, it, it's irrelevant to this part of the story. 
You know, what we know for sure is that they didn't worship God and, and that they had all sorts of other gods that they were pursuing and God was concerned that these nations would lead his people astray and, and cause them to worship other gods, which really was a well-founded concern because that's basically what happens for the next several hundred years. And so what happens here is God's just response to Jericho's wickedness and rebellion. But this text, Joshua 6, is much less concerned about God's just judgment than it is about God's incredible grace. It's way more interested in the fact that God chose to save Israel. Even if you go back to the same verse that I just read, Deuteronomy chapter 9, it wasn't their righteousness, Israel's righteousness, it wasn't their integrity, but it was simply God's choice and his promise. It was his choice to love them, to be in relationship with them, to choose them. See, if God only chose to be in relationship with people who were worthy of a relationship with him, he would have no relationships outside of himself. See, if God only chose to have a relationship with people who were good enough, righteous enough, holy enough, perfect enough, then God would have no relationships with humans at all. In fact, we would all go the way of Jericho. Instead, what's remarkable in this story, truly miraculous in this story and all of human history, is that God has chosen anyone, that he's chosen to be in a relationship with anyone, including Israel. He chose Israel even though he says of them at various points, you're the smallest of nations, you're not righteous, you have no integrity. They turn their back on him, they look for another way to get what they want, they're constantly doubting, refusing to obey him, and yet he chooses them over and over and over again because that's what he promised to do. <laughs> and this might be that moment where we need to sit God down and say, hey, let me give you some advice about the people you're choosing to be in a relationship with because they're going to be unfaithful to you over and over and over. But it's not just about Israel. Do you see that? Who else does God choose in this story to be in relationship with? Who else is there? It's Rahab. Rahab is actually introduced in Joshua chapter 2, four chapters earlier, when when the Israelites decide that they're going to send some spies ahead to go check out Jericho, but they get found out in the process. And so the leadership of Jericho is trying to hunt these spies down and kill them. And Rahab decides to instead protect them, takes them into their house, and then sends everyone on this wild goose chase. And as the spies are in her home, she engages them in conversation and says, hey, everybody here is totally freaked out because of you. I'm sure that's what the Hebrew literally means. But here's the deal, I know the Lord has given you this city, I know the Lord has given you our land, and so when you come to destroy this city, will you just do this for me? Will you, will you save me and my family? And the spies make this oath, this promise to save her, which is exactly what happened in our story. Joshua gives the instructions to those spies, those two guys, to go and find Rahab and everyone who's in her house, and they are all saved. They're taken outside of the city. They're rescued. But the amazing part is that as every, everyone else in Jericho, every animal and person is killed, Rahab is saved. Rahab. 
Did you see how she's referred to in this story? She's referred to three times, specifically in what we read this morning. Twice she's referred to as Rahab the prostitute. And the other time she's not even mentioned by name. She's simply called the prostitute. It seems fairly clear what the even the people of God, though recognizing she's done something incredible for them, they have a very clear opinion about her. It's being emphasized that she's the prostitute, and I think it's being emphasized on purpose because she is the unlikely one to be saved. (laughs) If there is any doubt that God does not choose based on perfection, morality, holiness, goodness, all the things that we tend to measure other people by, and assume that God does as well. I mean, this proves that God does not choose that way. Because the prostitute is chosen to be saved out of all of Jericho. She's chosen to be saved for a relationship with him. And we know she was saved for a relationship with him because she, right at the very end, we're told she's enfolded into the people of God. She lives among the Israelites to that day. (laughs) Really? Her? Yes. It was God's gracious choice. See, God didn't have to have them send spies ahead. Like, he didn't need them to scout out Jericho to find the weak points in the wall so that somehow he could orchestrate an attack, right? God was going to take down those walls because God felt like it. So the spies were unnecessary, and yet God lets them go, leads them ultimately to this place to have this conversation, to find Rahab, to choose her of all the people in Jericho to be saved for a relationship with God and for an incredible and special purpose. If you don't know the rest of Rahab's story, it's incredible. I take you to Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, we get the genealogy of Jesus. It's the list, right? It's, it's his family heritage, and, and it's all through the men. All the men are listed, the fathers of the fathers of the fathers of the fathers, with a few notable exceptions. One of those exceptions is found in chapter 1, verse 5, where Rahab is named in the genealogy of Jesus. That she is named. Rahab the prostitute is named. Rahab the prostitute is Jesus' great, 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 I don't exactly know how many great, 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 great grandmother. What? Yeah, God chose her for a special relationship with him, but also for a special purpose that when we judge and we measure the world, it blows our minds. He chose her for this special honor that through her would come the savior of the world, God's own son. And so God had graciously chosen her and she lived by faith in God. We're told that explicitly in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. It says, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. By faith, her victory was sure. By faith, she saved and protected those spies. It changed the way she was living every single moment, risked everything by faith to save those spies. By faith that she couldn't save herself, but that she needed God to save her. And she was responding by faith to the gracious love and the choice of God for her because she was everything she shouldn't have been to be in the lineage of Jesus. She was a woman, she was a foreigner, and she was morally bankrupt. 
and God chose her anyway. And it changed her life forever. Oh, and mine too, and yours, because through her came Jesus. The one that we're reminded in 1 Corinthians that we read earlier, that it's in him you are chosen. It's in him you're chosen to receive God's goodness, his mercy, and his love. It's not your righteousness, your perfection, or even your religion. Because there's a whole lot of religion that has nothing to do with living by faith. It might have to do with habit, it might have to do with with tradition, or it might have to do with compulsion. But there's a lot of religion that has nothing to do with faith. Because in religion, we're, we're looking at our lives and we're saying, hey, if I'm good enough, then God's going to accept me. If I'm good enough, I can be worthy of God's love and his forgiveness. If I'm good enough, then that'll counteract all the sin in my life, and then God has no choice but to accept me. That's not living by faith. Living by faith says I have nothing to offer. I am not good enough. I am the morally bankrupt and the outcast. And undeserving, I deserve to go the way of Jericho, but Jesus has taken my place to save me. And it was God's gracious choice of you in Jesus Christ. Because perhaps, like 1 Corinthians and Rahab remind us, you're the unlikely one in the story. And I'm the unlikely one. Paul said it this way in that letter. He said, not many of you were wise Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of a noble birth when you were called. In fact, a bunch of you were lowly and despised, shameful, weak, and yet God chooses the foolish things to shame the wise. He chooses the weak things to shame the strong. He chooses the lowly things and despised things of the world to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. Instead, boast not in what we have done, but by faith, boasting in what Jesus has done for you. Do you know? Are you confident that what Jesus has done for you has assured you of the victory? Do you know that Jesus chose to be born through Rahab so that he could take your sin, your failure, and your death upon himself? Do you really know? I don't know what wall you're facing today. But to live by faith says that the victory is assured for you not because of what you're going to do, but because of what Jesus has done for you. And he has chosen you to be in a relationship with God and to have a special purpose that just like the good news was born through Rahab, the good news of Jesus Christ can be born through you into a world that is still boasting of itself, boasting on its own terms, but needs to know that it's in Jesus that they are chosen to be loved. Just like you, just like me, just like Israel, and just like Rahab. (laughs) God doesn't choose very well but he's chosen you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story and this word that speaks to us, that reminds us of your incredible, gracious love and choice. Lord, help us to abandon faith in ourselves, abandon faith in our ability, in our goodness, in our worthiness, but instead to live by faith in Jesus Christ, in his goodness, his worthiness, his death in our place, 
so that we could be loved by you. Lord God, thank you that you've chosen us to be in a relationship with you and to make the good news of Jesus Christ known through us. Lord, increase our faith that we can walk by faith every day. Amen.